Hello, you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies today. Finally, we're talking about mall rats, and we're talking about mall rats with our great friend, Nico Stratus. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed, and I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Mallrats is a 1995 American buddy comedy film written and directed by Kevin Smith. It stars Jason Lee, Jeremy London, Shannon Doherty, Claire Forlani, Ben Affleck, Jason Mewes, Joey Lauren Adams, Michael Rooker, and Kevin Smith himself as Silent Bob. It is the second film in the Viewisk universe, which we will talk about in this very episode. The Viewisk universe, all of the 90s, 2000s movies by Kevin Smith. And it's a prequel to 1994's Clerks, which is a very funny thing to think about. Nico Stratus, of course, is a culture writer based in Toronto, Ontario, by way of the Yukon, where she spent close to two decades working as a journeyman glazer before coming out as a trans woman in her late 30s and being forced to abandon her previous line of work. As a trans woman now in her 40s, Nico provides a unique voice in cultural spaces, seeking to work through lifelong traumas and emotional highs and lows through her work. Nico is one of my favorite people. Nico is a close friend of mine. I love Nico. So happy she's here. And anytime you see Nico is going to be on the show or on any show, you know that you are in for a treat. Have I told you yet that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is a show where we are not critics necessarily, although we say some critical things sometimes. We are people who watch movies and we think about how the movie makes us think about how we relate to people and uh, uh, which feelings it makes us feel, uh, what it's like to be a human being in the world and how this movie in particular uh, makes us examine that. That's what we do here. And we have fun doing it. We laugh a whole lot. This is a robust episode. It runs a little bit longer than some of our others because we are all people, the people who are on this episode. We are all people who were raised in one way or another on Kevin Smith movies. So we had a lot to say. We talk uh, about Kevin Smith and Clerks, I think, for a half hour before we even get to Marats. <laughs> So that's the sort of thing that you are in for. How are you doing? What's going on in your world? What is going on in your life? Tell us uh, what you're thinking. Tell us what you're feeling. You can find us on social media at you are good or you are good pod, depending on which one you're looking at. I'm trying to post reels on a somewhat regular basis, uh, you know, videos that feature some of our conversations from this very show, videos that are edited by our great friend Alyssa Anafrio. And in some weeks, I'm really good at posting them. And uh, in other weeks, I'm not. <laughs> But they're good when they're up. You can find them on our Instagram. You can find them on my TikTok. Uh, find us on all of the various socials. Let us know how you're doing. Let us know how you're feeling. Let us know what is going on. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. You are good. A Feelings Podcast about movies is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions in exchange for your support, you get bonus episodes. We have a bonus episode on Lars and the Real Girl coming out. It may even be out right now. It's coming out any minute. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. And uh, I hope you enjoy those bonus episodes in exchange. We appreciate it. You help make it so that uh, us creative folk can make a living. And we appreciate that. Thank you so much. If you, like me, are an advocate for ceasefire, find 
local actions in your neighborhood. They're happening all over. I'm sure you can find something around where you are. And if you have something to give, if you can help materially in some way, please consider making a contribution to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. We will have a link to that in the show notes. All right. I think that's it from me for now before we dive in to this, uh, uh, again, extremely robust conversation about Malrats. So grab yourself a bag of chocolate covered pretzels and uh, get yourself a tiny cup of water and uh, join in this celebration of this 1995 masterpiece, won't you? Let's talk Malrats with Nico Stratus. Well, 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 well. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, you mall rat. Hello from the back of a Volkswagen. <laughs> really committed to that joke from start to finish. That's what Kevin Smith is about, is commitment to verbal jokes. I was just talking with someone and they were like, um, and it came up that I had zines when I was a kid and they were like, what were your zines like? And I was like, I was a kid who loved two things more than anything. Kevin Smith and George Carlin. Mm. So imagine what a kid who loved those things, but also didn't really read books would have written. And that's what my free speech were. comics, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> free speech, absolutism. Um, well, 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 I, is this the first Kevin Smith movie that we're covering on this here show? It's got to be 160 plus episodes in. That's unbelievable. I think it's believable. I think that our shadow selves live within Kevin Smith and we have been reluctant to journey there until we could do so with a companion as brave as Nico Stratus, the storm chaser herself. I did it. I, Sarah, I didn't text you this because I, I know that you were busy and I was like, I don't want to bother you while I know you're busy. And I also know that Alex is busy and it is funny that I did choose to bother him, but I immediately- It's a different kind of you're busy. Different, you're busy in different <laughs> ways. And I texted Alex and said, have you seen the Twisters trailer? I think about Twister all the time and I think about our time together talking about that movie. And I'm just saying when it hits theaters, I will fly down. We will go to the, we will attend their premiere together. Yes. I think we must. Nico, yeah, uh, tell us about your relationship with the filmography of Kevin Smith. <laughs> yeah, and and then where does Mallrats fit into that for you? I am delighted to know that I'm the person, the first person to bring a Kevin Smith movie to the to the pod. It was going to be my mom, Nico. So you bumped my mom. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You'd have $12. I'd be making money in a very weird way. Um, <laughs> I I know it's like cool to say that like I got into Kevin Smith through Clerks or whatever, and I didn't. And I also, like, I do need to preface this as well, but at one point, Alex and I were talking and I said, do you want me to bring a good movie to the podcast? Because I feel like my like continued bit is like what if what if i talk about a movie that i think a lot of people might think is bad other than twister which is the, the most perfect movie ever to live <laughs> but Mallrats was the first time i knew about kevin smith i rented him i rented it from the video store from shout out to the 38 famous video in whitehorse yukon where i would ride my bike to the video store and just rent vhs tapes on the wall and uh, i had no idea what Mallrats was um, but I liked the cover because it had a magic eye on the cover and it had like 
you know, Jason Lee and Shannon Doherty. And it looked like, it looked very 90s in this way where you would like really roll the dice on movies occasionally. At least I would when I was at the mm-hmm. video store. A lot of movie covers at the time, I feel like, like there was a real language to VHS covers to try and convey to you what you were getting. The two horror VHS cases, I remember scaring the big Jesus out of me as a kid in a very intriguing way, were Candyman yes. and Cheerleader Camp, starring oh, Betsy yeah. Russell. Oh, yeah. But then a lot of the like regular kind of comedies or conversation-based movies were just like white people standing around, and it was really hard to know which white people to choose. And then it would have like quotes, like the, do you remember... Like mid movies would have like critical endorsements that were like dot 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 great dot 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 variety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I dot 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 liked it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The cover from Mallrats kind of reminds me of the cover to Go, starring Toronto resident Sarah Pauly. Um, totally. Because it has that, like, it is like, what if white people stood on an angle creating depth <laughs> of field? Yes. I had this poster when I was because it's it's drawn like a comic yeah 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 because this is like sort of like was outlying at the time as being sort of a very comic-y thing yeah and I like it because this seems like strategic and what we're talking about is there's Brody played by Jason Lee is sort of like standing on a pile of comics uh Shannon Doherty is is like hugging his leg there's this security guard the fours there's Jay inside which is also a Star Wars homage yes yeah and if you saw this you would have even less of an idea of what you were getting into than four white people standing around. Like this is, <laughs> but it does also like, because I was like, it, this is, it's funny. So like we are recording this right in the wake of me having submitted the first rough draft of my book. Hell yeah. Uh, thank you. I'm <laughs> my brain is like total mush also from doing this process. But it, I think I've been thinking about a lot is like when I was younger, I had all of these like things that I really liked and eventually they got whittled away by like time and trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was like, I was a really big comic book kid until I like learned that that was a thing I had to hide away from people. And it like selling itself as a comic book movie was big for me. And it just, there was just like something about it that was very enticing. And like, I also had Jason Lee's signature airwalks when I was a teenager. I was also really into skateboarding and he was a professional skater before this is his first like real acting credit. That's wild to think about because he plays such like sit around guys i know i had so many cutouts from like trans world skateboarding and thrasher of jason lee on my wall how many cutouts of jason lee yeah so with counting this poster which doesn't count counting this poster counting eventually a chasing amy poster maybe like like 10 or 12 did you have a vanilla sky standy i did not did you Nico? Yeah, I still do. It's just, it's slightly Aww. off frame. It's, me and my friend, my, all my friends are laughing and enjoying themselves. They're just out of frame. And it's, but it's just Jason Lee standings from the various, the filmography of Jason Lee. Oh my God. Including his, his starring role in the video for Sonic Youth's 100%, Classic. where he plays a skateboarder that, spoiler alert, dies. This is filmed by Spike Jones. Little music trivia for you the bass that Kim Gordon is playing in that music video was loaned to her by none other than Keanu Reeves. <laughs> the 90s really were like yeah 12 guys <laughs> 12 guys exactly it is a potpourri of, of disastrous white people truly uh, like when you talk about the cultural yeah, exactly. ephemera of the 1990s this is why i really loved kim gordon's memoir is like every page was like what nico just described like every single page was like some collage yeah. 
of people that you felt some warmth for. Every page is like, and then Kurt Cobain <laughs> went to the soda fountain with Andrea from 90210. And you're like, what? That's exactly right. Like everywhere, if you like have like an uneasy feeling in the 1990s, you just knew that like Beck was there somewhere, like lurking, <laughs> waiting to like jump out at you and, and scare you. I remember, so I remember, I can't remember which MTV award it was. Beck was, I think, doing a performance of maybe Where It's At in a real, like, sort of Becky way. And then they stopped the performance to announce that Tupac had just gotten shot. No. And that is my connection between the two. It's, it's like every time you see Beck having a good time, it might stop real abruptly and become a bad time. And that's the, the mid-90s right there. Right, exactly. That's exactly yeah. what every day was like. You had to wait for a Beck Live performance to get the day's news. <laughs> to get jish, 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 MTV news. I just want to insert myself quickly and say that what happened in this instance wasn't that Beck stopped the performance in the middle of whatever award ceremony it was. It was that, and people of a certain age will remember this, when a, a particular piece of breaking news happened, MTV News interrupted transmission of Beck's performance <laughs> to let us know that something extremely moving or tragic happened. I just want to make that clear, just in case you're going to go look on the internet for this interrupted performance. It wasn't that. It was that we got an MTV News alert in the middle of her performance, and so we knew that shit was real. All right, back to the show. All right, you got in through Mallrats. Yeah, so I got into Mallrats, got it home, watched it, was very confused as to what it was, but knew immediately that this was like my thing. Like early on, like this movie came out in 95, I was 13. I don't think I saw it in 95, it was probably shortly after because it wasn't big in theaters. Like I saw it on VHS for sure. But it was like the first time that I saw a thing that felt like it was speaking to me where I could take away and be like, this is my thing. This belongs to me. Not a lot of people like kids in the school hall weren't like, Hey, did everybody see mall rats last night? You know, like it wasn't a, it wasn't a piece of culture that we were sort of trading around. What were they talking about in the mid nineties in your school? (sighs) Kurt Cobain and then the death of Kurt Cobain. And then the one Mm -hmm. kid that had a silver chair t-shirt because his brother went to see silver chair live in concert. And he came back, he came to school one day with a silver chair frog stomp shirt. And he was like the Mm -hmm. coolest kid in the world for like a, one year span I think about that shirt to this day Uh we get a silver chair song in this very movie great soundtrack by the way first of all yeah the best featuring silver chair Bush X Weezer I feel like Nico you and I probably have a similar relationship with the movie similar timeline and I distinctly remember being the only person in my class that knew what this movie was because Mm. this movie was in the theater for one week Mm. before it made only $400,000 against $6 million and then Universal yanked it. So which happened with a lot of movies at the time and, and still in different ways, but yeah. It was like this beautiful time period where like people were sort of allowed to take these big wild swings where it's like, like Mallrats isn't really about anything like so much, especially this period of the 90s is so much storytelling about nothing at all. Like this is like mm. your Seinfeld area is like post Cobain 90s are such an interesting period mm. in culture because the 90s haven't figured out what they're going to be yet, which is like, you know, kind of a plasticky cultural sort of thing. Like we're a couple of years away from a spice world, you know, we're sort of like the way we date all history. <laughs> 
before <laughs> Spice World era and after Spice World era. I feel like in a proper culture, this is how we would mark time is like, <laughs> yeah, no, we're starting it right now. Yeah. Before Spice World. And we're just hitting things with sticks to turn them on and off. And then afterwards we invented the clapper. <laughs> <laughs> the 90s, I feel like in my memory of them and my experience of them as a child, which is always quite different from experiencing a time as an adult, but you do notice things, sometimes things adults miss, was that it was a time of like kind of myopic optimism where we had this idea of ourselves based, uh, I think, on the zeitgeist of baby boomers specifically as like wild children who had grown up and we'd had like the rebellious 60s and the drifter 70s and the go-go 80s and now everybody was going to wear some horrible pants and calm the fuck down and get a golden retriever yeah you know and we'd figured it all out in a big open plaid shirt <laughs> yeah a lot of, a lot of golden retrievers i feel like it's the untrained family dog era of american <laughs> culture what was the dialogue in the sort of like the ways of presentation and style of exchange? Like what was all of that from this movie doing for you as a, as a young 13 year old? Well, it's, it was like, it was again, like so much of it, I feel like was speaking in a language I understood, like Brody, the lead character, you're, you're threw away into with this untested actor. Like Jason Lee had not been an actor prior to this. You know, he's like, he's a comic book guy. He, the movie opens with his, relationship failing because he's a loser this movie is about the triumph of losers ultimately he look he's playing nhl 93 on his sega genesis and his room that's covered in comic book shit on the wall you know as a kid they're like cut and paste magazines and wallpaper in my bedroom with them and to my parents annoyance when they eventually had to tear them all away and tore the walls apart tearing all the <laughs> stuff i glued to the walls off you gotta do what you gotta do nico all you want <laughs> is some classic good taste and a little ambiance I'm I'm, we're, I'm setting a vibe and a mood in here, and and it's it's glued directly to the wall. <laughs> you know, like he's he likes comic books, and he doesn't really have you know as Ben Affleck eventually beats into him, he doesn't have an agenda. He just likes to hang out, and like he's not driven to be anything or anyone. He's just sort of like existing as the world sort of happens around him, and is like and he's funny and he's quippy and he's like he's got this sort of like. The leads of this movie, I, I, I've i said this to other people before, and it's interesting. I'm writing a novel right now, and my lead character is named Brody, which is an homage to, to Brody from Allrats. And mm -hmm. I think about Brody and Renee is played by Shannon Doherty as like both of them conspiring together to make one perfect gender, which was like the goal for me of like <laughs> both of them were like, am I attracted to you or do I want to be you? And ultimately mm -hmm. it was true for both of them at the same time because mm -hmm. they just sort of have this like aloofness and like sort of laissez-faire attitude that is also like very bitter and very jaded for reasons you don't fully understand, but you can kind of place them if you're sort of in that same place yourself of like, I have been harmed or scarred by the world and this is the way I'm reacting to it, which is like, maybe I'm trying to be too like cerebral about Mallrats, a movie that doesn't ask you to think too much about it. But like, this is a movie that I've thought about a lot over the years as I've revisited it every now and then. I'm like, well, how did this speak to me? Like, because after this, I you know, I remember telling a friend and his older brother was like, oh, you got to see Clerks. And he gave me like a dubbed VHS copy of Clerks. And I watched that and I was like, when does the color turn on? It's black and white. What's happening? <laughs> well, I, did, I was saying to Sarah earlier that it's like this, you know, uh, the when we talked about in Bruges, Caroline O'Donoghue who was on and talked about the term varia play, which comes up in her podcast. This feels like Kevin Smith just wrote a number of monologues about what was on his mind. Yeah, totally. And just split it up into dialogue. <laughs> it is like, it kind of feels like the most unfiltered Kevin Smith movie. Cause he's not trying to like, 
he would make Chasing Amy after this, which is like very heavy handed in a way that works and doesn't. And there's a really great documentary that was made a couple of years ago by this trans man who was sort of like talking about how the queerness of the movie sort of affected him and all this stuff. And Mallrats is kind of, it's nothing, it's, it's nothing, but it is this unfiltered, like, here's everything that matters to me. I'm going to try mm-hmm. to present it in a way where there's a thematic story tied to it. But really, this is just about, it's very much a day in the life, which is a sort of storytelling we have kind of lost in the intervening years. Like, it was a big thing in the 90s of like, here's a single day that is of little consequence and we will show you what happened to these people afterwards. But none of that stuff really matters so much as like, what can happen in a single day? Mm-hmm. And you want to imagine there's also there's one perfect day that happens in a mall where like you simultaneously get the shit beat out of you by Ben Affleck. But you also like get your comeuppance and you get to find yourself in all of this and like you sort of want to imagine that in all that pain eventually there will be triumph and that's sort of like that is a thing that kind of happened in this movie this is the new jersey version of love actually in a way (laughs) it kind of is jersey actually and it's also an easter movie yeah jersey actually mall actually malls really are all around us because it's the 90s Sarah, do you want to take us on a little trip to the mall before we go any further? I would love to go. Yeah. So Mall Rats, and I will also open because it'll come up a lot in my telling of it. I came to Kevin Smith through Clerks, which was showing on IFC a lot in 2004 because there was like a documentary about the making of it for the 10 year anniversary in my memory. And I watched it and that movie made a huge impression on me because it was basically like, how can a regular mope who's not particularly good at any subject, like break out of their small town existence and become a director. Yeah. Kevin's just to under underline that Mm -hmm. this movie made 400,000 theatrically Mm -hmm. uh, against 6 million clerks, which was made for $27,000 infamously on Kevin Smith's credit card. Mm -hmm. After he sold his comic book collection to partially fund it. Made 111 times its budget when it was eventually sort of like bought and distributed by Miramax. And so he was one of the people that studios were like, we give this guy money. He's going to make us gold. Yeah. And it was this great story that you could aspire to as a young kid with enough capital to sell and put that into a movie budget or, you know, parents and relatives to bother like the way Sam Raimi did for the evil (laughs) dead, which I also (laughs) fantasized about. Mm -hmm. There just aren't, There weren't stories that I encountered growing up about women who did this because any story about a creative woman you encounter growing up typically is like her husband burned her writing whenever he could find it. And so she scratched out her great novel with a chicken feather while sitting on the privy. And you're like, great, that's exciting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Or, or you're like Adrian Shelley and you do it and then you get murdered. It was not a great, right. just era wise, these stories were not existing for women who are making movies. Yeah. And by era wise, we mean, you know, basically all of time. <laughs> the era of motion picture. But we're really turning it around, <laughs> I think. Yeah. And so, yeah, the Kevin Smith story was very exciting. And of course, that also happened partly because the mid 90s were a time when Harvey Weinstein with Miramax was like flipping independent movies left and right. So it's inevitably part of that legacy. Yeah. And that's just part of it, too, that, you know, you can't have Kevin Smith king made by a kingmaker without that person also having the power to 
have an unrestrained reign of terror with women. Or you can actually, but we didn't think that in the 90s, so we didn't bother. Well, it's the interesting other side of that story too, where we're talking about sort of like who was able to make these movies because it's almost become a, a cliche in how often it is. But often anytime you're like, I wonder what ever happened to that actress. Chances uh-huh. are Harvey Weinstein was involved uh, in one very nefarious way and then continuously in making sure that person didn't get other opportunities. So that was like the right. other side of the gender dynamic there. The living embodiment of you'll never work in this town again. Right. Right. And then, you know, it feels like the narrative often becomes she's difficult. Right. Yes. Yeah. That, yes. To sexually assault being mm-hmm. the unsaid part of that sentence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, to speak of this movie, Shannon Doherty was someone that was always like when you would read about her in tabloids and stuff like by this time, by the time she makes this movie, 90210 is a known property, which is a joke that appears in the movie. And like the mm-hmm. thing you always knew about Shannon Doherty is like, she's difficult. She's crazy. She's a bitch. She's blah, blah, blah. There's all these things that were always sort of talked about her, but you never really heard from her necessarily. And in the rear view, mm-hmm. I think about this a lot of like, did she like so many people have like this grand disservice done to her because maybe she was just trying to push back on a system that was inherently toxic to her and that you know paints her as this difficult mean woman or whatever when maybe she was just trying to be assertive and like maybe in a cerbic way but maybe that's all she had maybe that's the only tool in her toolbox and like yeah it is an interesting thing to think about in the in the in the rear view totally right and we just we don't i feel like i don't know enough but i mean odds are she at some point got unfairly punished for fairly reasonable behavior. That's just inevitable in a woman's career, I feel yeah. like. Um, and especially in Hollywood in this era and as a, a young person who's there for, you know, sex appeal. Because then it feels like the power that you bring to a negotiation is even less because there's this idea that you're replaceable. Mm-hmm. That I think yeah. people like Shannon Doherty, especially in that time we're dealing with. Yeah. And so Clerks, I mean, we should talk about that somewhere at some point. I feel like it'll happen. But Clerks is a movie that was shot on $27,000. And boy, did it look like that. And not in a bad way, but it, it looked like it was filmed on a surveillance camera. And it was very a play. And it was just this guy named Dante Hicks working at a convenience store. He wasn't even supposed to be here today. And his friend Randall, who works at the video store next door. And like this movie is so monologue heavy. And the actors are so pulled from like Kevin Smith's friends and family and neighbors that like some characters are just like reading aloud. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the line reads in that movie are difficult at times for sure. And there's like a George Lucas quality to Kevin Smith where it's like you can find people who can remember these lines but boy is it hard to act sometimes because they're it's treatises you know sometimes they're just saying treatises and this and this was so i don't know how this struck you sarah when you were first encountering it but it was the first time i had ever seen people who looked or sounded like me in interest talking about the things around the movie, not the text of the movie itself or employing the text of the movie it was like the first time i experienced any cultural criticism I think. Totally. 
I think the thing that works really well with clerks and mall rats both is that they're grounded in a reality you can understand because like clerks is set at a convenience store. Mall rats is in a mall. Like it's in, it's, Mm -hmm. it's this very real tactile world that is like made by a guy who lives in a real tactile world, especially when he makes clerks. He's not wealthy. Even by the time he makes mall rats, it's not like he's like flush with cash. He just has had one success and is looking to to strike. And there are movies about service workers. Totally. Yeah. Like I was talking about this with somebody a while ago because they were asking me about why I like Empire Records so much. And I was like, part of it is that I started working when I was really young. I was, I got my first job Mm -hmm. when I was 13. I've worked every day of my life since. And like I existed in this world of service work and of being out in the world. And like, and that's a very real world. And we've kind of lost that storytelling in a way. Like we don't tell as many stories that exist in these places. And I was always like, man, if I could, could make a movie or whatever, I would like make a, like a period piece of the 90s set in a grocery store or something like that because that's Mm -hmm. where I worked for four years and like because there's a lot of storytelling opportunities in these real places where people really live and work and move and like that was a big thing in the 90s that has sort of like been stripped away as we've you know moved into the sort of artifice of of the early 2000s and beyond but like it's a thing Mm -hmm. I think that works really well for these first two movies is they're grounded in a very real place. Well, and I think independent movies were just kind of at the sweet spot of budget or whatever, where you'd also have movies like Before Sunrise and, um, you know, even Pulp Fiction at the time, like it was known in large part for being so conversation based, as we kind of been talking about when we talked about in Bruges and about the sort of trivial conversations between these two hitmen, you know, in Seinfeld, like you talked about where, yeah, it is interesting how in this era, like the talk movie becomes very big and woody allen had like a big string of hits yeah jim jarmusch was killing it in that arena and it was all just like things you talk about like two and a half beers in yeah Mm -hmm. or like or like enough of a joint where you're not too high (laughs) the sweet spot we call that two and a half beers in after a full day of work where you didn't have very much lunch yeah 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 you've got one shoe on one shoe off yeah yeah and rom-coms like were conversational movies. I remember watching the director's commentary for When Harry Met Sally once, which is 1989, but close enough. And I think like the phrase comes up of like, you know, this movie is just like wall to wall conversations. Mm. And I was like, God, it's just it is. It's just every scene is a conversation. And rom-coms were a great excuse to have characters just talk to each other without much with like the progressing romance as the plot holding it together. And sometimes you would like rush to an airport for some reason or something, but generally you're just talking, you know? Yeah. Definitely. They're like community theater podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I think about every nineties movie. That's perfect. Particularly in rom- I mean, I think the significance of that happening in rom-coms is so interesting because usually like when you are meeting someone new, you're, essentially like a kind of establishing some new distilled version of yourself through all of those interactions. Sure. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're, you're offering all of the best things you've ever observed, (laughs) all of the, all of the sharpest conclusions you've ever come to. And in that sort of bouncing back and forth, you're like getting to know each other, but really you're like maybe getting to know yourself again for the first time. And I, I think that that's why that format works really, really well, particularly in like, romantic movies where people are first starting to engage they're peacocking right it's like look at i'm gonna put i'm gonna put myself on display and here's here's all my finery flicking your giant intellectual tail around (laughs) exactly i love that 
So you found that you found Clerks in 2004. Yeah, Clerks really affected me that inspired the horror movie I made as a teenager, Langosta, which was only five minutes long, but which took a lot of effort. Mm. <laughs> and so I hadn't seen Mallrats, though, until preparing to do this episode, just because especially when I was a teenager, I would really attach to specific things. And then if something was a little bit different, I'd be like, no. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so I think that's the main reason. But it, Mallrats is so interesting as a continuation of Clerks because it feels like all right, so like you're not in a convenience store, you're in a mall, but you're kind of just in a giant store here in the big shops, as they say on Sarah and Duck. And now we can afford to have more characters walking around more different stores inside of a mall and doing different things. But Clerks was also like you had kind of random characters coming in and out, but it's just so interesting to see aesthetic realized using a higher budget and more resources um, and some named or nameable actors, which is, I don't know, it's just fascinating. And Dante's here. This idea that like someone takes commerce and sales seriously is an indication that they are a bad person is really wonderful. Like we have <laughs> yeah. Shannon Hamilton, who's played by, by Ben Affleck, and this is the manager of Fashionable Mail. He gives his like villain speech. And in part of his villain speech, he says to Brody, I have no respect for people with no sales agenda. Yeah. And, and Brody, our hero, like goes to like the fucking antique flea market. And it's the place that he kind of prefers to be sometimes. And like the dirt mall, the dirt mall. And I love this. This movie's relationship with how seriously you take like the commercial side of commerce being an indicator of like how good or bad you are. <laughs> yeah, there's a real morality tied to like your commercial sort of desires in this a lot. And it does also like, you know, when Sarah was talking about it, like it wasn't a convenience store and now in a mall in my head, I'm like, right, this is basically a reboot of Clerks in a way. Like yeah. it is like, okay, well, let's do that again, but let's, let's make some, let's change some of the characters and let's open the world a little let's bit. Let's give you a real camera. <laughs> well, in, in Chasing Amy was supposed to be set in a high school between high school students. And so like his, in, huh? the, in the very last Kevin Smith kind of notoriously at the in the credits of all of his movies would have thank yous to all of his sort of like idols and heroes and people who were part of it. And the very mm -hmm. last person he thanks in this movie is John Hughes for giving him something to do on Friday and Saturday nights. Aww. And like a lot of John Hughes movies are just like young people being quippy in a place. <laughs> sure. It's like the most aspirational thing because you can imagine that you're a guy that doesn't have a job that just has to go to the mall, but also you're funny and charming and your girlfriend was Shannon Doherty until very recently. And like, you know, like you can envision yourself in this place, much like you can see Kevin Smith and be like, that's a guy I want to be because he's this like self-made auteur. You can see the world that he's made and be like, I can belong here because these are regular ass people that ultimately mm -hmm. are like downtrodden losers, but they're like funny and charming and attractive and like, yeah. And they're like young adults hanging out with their friends and like not working as hard as they're supposed to be, which is a fairly universal experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a person that didn't have a lot of friends at the age that I watched Mallrats for the first time, you really want to believe that like, oh, I can be the person that these people are in this movie and have friends at the same time. That's an interesting prospect. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And I also watched Clerks for the first time at a time when I didn't have many friends. But then like when I did get a couple, I was like. It's like clerks. We talk about stupid stuff all day long. It's my dream. This is like a big thing of like, especially coming from working and like, cause he worked at that quick stop before he turned it into a backdrop for a movie. And like, and I think when you work in places like that, you also learn to have those kinds of conversations, right? Where you're like, yeah, let's talk about the independence 
contractors on Star Wars or let's walk through the mall and we're going to talk about how Superman mm-hmm. and Lois Lane could never have babies. And like you do sort of develop these conversational rhythms when you exist in those sorts of places because it's different than like conversations you would have in academia or in school or whatever because you are kind of biting. You're just waiting for the clock to run out. And like, how do <laughs> right. we do that in the most interesting way? It's the time in your life that in retrospect is so precious because you just have time to waste. Yeah. Yes. And you never will again. No. <laughs> no. So Sarah, so what is Mall Rats about? about <laughs> what's it about? I'll tell you. All right. So there's two guys. I love I love this so much. What if we never yeah. get to the plot? That would be hilarious. <laughs> what if we never do? It we're, there there are worse things I could do than go with a boy or two. <laughs> Okay, so we have our two main characters, Quint and Brody, who are named naturally after the main guys in Jaws. Where's Hooper? Oh my god, I just I just realized that's what's happening. Isn't that great? I've seen this movie so many times. It's got levels. I cannot believe I didn't pick up that that's what that is. Oh my god. Okay, keep going. Sorry. It's a thing of beauty. Thing of beauty. Joy forever. So T.S. Quint, who's played by the guy who plays... Pink Floyd from Dazed and Confused. This is Jeremy London, and that is Jason London. What? The other London. There are two. They look identical. They're they're twins. <laughs> Jason London, twenty seven minutes older than Jeremy London. What? Little fact. Little little London fact for you. What? This is the London that was on Party of Five. Know your Londons. I have no. <laughs> this is Know Your Londons with Nico Stratus. Were you also in the public awareness campaign for Londons in the Yukon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was. Know your. Please be aware. Know of, your Londons. Be aware of your local Londons. Look, Jack London, very big in the Yukon, so it's conceivable <laughs> that I would have been part of a London awareness campaign. And then there's Stacy London from What Not to Wear, and then there's of course London the city. Bit of trivia. So London, Ontario, close to where I live now in Toronto. There's. L- there's layers of London's <laughs> werewolves of comma. <laughs> so J- which one is in this one? <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy. Jeremy London. All right. So Jeremy London, a whole other one from Jason London. I'm just learning <laughs> a whole other London. Apparently a whole other London is at the start of this movie getting broken up with by his girlfriend, Claire Forlani, who has yet to master the American accent. Big time. Because... Her friend was going to be on her father, Michael Rooker's live game show taping at the mall. Are you with me? Which used to happen, everybody. So those 90s ass thing is like the local TV channels filming at the mall. There used to be live game show tapings at malls. (laughs) I did not know about that. Honestly, I missed that. I came too late to the mall. Also fashion shows. But yeah, this is great. The mall used to be a center for people to gather and have large social events. And once we lost that, I think the hollowing process followed pretty quickly. (laughs) So Claire Forlani's friend was supposed to do this. But of course, Jeremy London, Quint, made a casual reference to how the camera adds 10 pounds. And so she became self-conscious and swam 780 laps and then had an embolism and drowned, which is also a reference that happens to a character people talk about in Clerks. And there's a lot of Clerks connections. Yeah, that's the funeral they go to in Clerks. Right. The view askew averse. 
builds around us. Julie Dwyer, the woman, the name of the woman who dies in the pool. He was like, now that I have a bigger toolbox, we need to attack this Julie Dwyer question. I need a London to kill her. No, no, no. We can't afford the one London. Let's get the let's get get me affordable London. <laughs> and so, okay, so she breaks up with him. Not just because of that, although it's certainly reasonable grounds, but she's like, so I have to stay and be in my father, Michael Rooker's live mall game show dating game homage taping. And Quint is like, what the fuck? You have to come with me. We're going to Florida. I'm going to propose to you on the Universal Studio Tour or whatever. When Jaws pops out of the water. My namesake. He doesn't tell her that, but that's why he wants her to go. And so they, she breaks up with him because he's, to be fair, fucked up a couple times very recently. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Jason Lee, playing Brody, is also getting broken up with by his girlfriend, Shannon Doherty, because he won't introduce her to his mom and she has to sneak around and he won't bother having sex with her because he's very busy playing Sega hockey. Mm-hmm. The number of times people say Sega to refer to like a video game console generally as a concept really speaks of the time. Oh, peak 90s. This is when Notorious B.I.G. was dropping Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo uh, references in, in lyrics and uh, in an era of hip hop that delights me to no end. When uh, owning a Sega Genesis and a Super Nintendo was like, I made it. Which just makes me think of Cartman going, Sega Genesis. <laughs> Forget when that came up, but it did. <laughs> Okay, so both of our main guys have gotten broken up with. What to do? They're going to go to the mall together and kill time and hang out with their friends Jay and Silent Bob, who we first met in Clerks. Silent Bob is, of course, played by Kevin Smith, who was wearing the popular trench coat look before 60 Minutes, but the kibosh on that after Columbine. A white guy could not wear a trench coat. Really, even now, it's hard to pull off. I will say he's stuck with it. Yeah, good for him. Because he was like, I'm Kevin Smith. I made trench coats and backwards hats. God damn it. I'll be damned if I'm going to give them up. That's true. Yeah. He was he, he he was here first and he's not leaving. And I mean, the structure of this, it's it's not the most structured movie, but our, our characters that we meet are Joey Lauren Adams, who is Quint's ex-girlfriend who fucked Rick Darris. Mm-hmm. on a pool table <laughs> which is an amazing scene because he's like you fucked rick darris and she's like i was in a halloween costume and nobody remembers shit like that <laughs> yeah her takeaway is great i like that jason lee's like easy delivery of how many times do you ever get to see Smokey fuck the bandit <laughs> yeah and then we learned that she was whichever one burt R- reynolds was i forget was he smoky? Yeah. Didn't I look just like Burt Reynolds? <laughs> yeah, except for the mustache. That's what I, my kids are going to be named Smokey and the Bandit. Those are some true gender neutral kids names. Yeah. Anybody can be a Smokey. We bring back Smokey. More guys named Smokey. <laughs> and more, more children named the Bandit. <laughs> <laughs> this is my child, the Bandit. Yeah. First yeah. name, the middle name, Bandit. Um, we call them TB. <laughs> So, yeah, so they go to the mall, as I've mentioned before, because it's just a great thing about this movie. uh, Quint's ex-girlfriend's dad is played by Michael Rooker. And we also have a scary security guard who Jay and Silent Bob. What are they trying to do with this guy that involves Silent Bob having to do Batman stuff? The first plan 
is to stop the game show right? so that Brandy doesn't have to go and do it, which is T.S.'s plan, not checked with her. He's protecting his property uh, in in the form of, of, of his romantic interest. And if, Silent Bob sweeps like sort of catapults in or or swings in like like Batman. He can pull out a pin in the middle of it and the whole thing will collapse. Mm-hmm. Then we also have Trisha, who is our 15 year old sexologist. Trish the dish. Who I did see a clip featuring her when I was about that age. And I was like, yes, that's what I want to do. So, <laughs> you know, we get once again into the issue of consent where it's like, it's not about what minors want to do. It's about what adults have to stop them from sometimes wanting to do. But what a great concept. In absolute aside about Trish, uh, Sarah, did you agree with her controversial, the most controversial statement Mm. where she says women want romance, not Mr. Toad's wild ride. How did you feel about that line? (laughs) Well, and then Jason Lee says, be fair. Everyone wants Mr. Toad's wild ride. (laughs) And I think that's correct. I mean, I, I just think sometimes Mr. Toad's wild ride is romance is the thing, right? It ends in hell. I mean, what more? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I know. I love, I love how many of the original Disney rides start with a warning that you could die during it or feature like a storyline where you end by dying. (laughs) (laughs) They knew what kids wanted. (laughs) Yeah, what we want to do is face is move through the stages of grief and end in death. Yeah. Yeah. And so Trish, our our sexologist, at the end of the movie, they show her autographing copies of her book, which we learn spent 72 weeks on the bestseller list. And then is she she's with the security guard, right? Because there's this guy kissing her on the cheek who's wearing a, like a straw boater. Yeah. At the very least, they're seeing each other with some familiarity. I think that there's just a relationship happening because that was something we made jokes about at the time, which just is really helps a lot with our data search about what our culture was like back then. <laughs> yes. She also gives like an un- unfair representation of what your first book advance is going to be from <laughs> if you're a minor because she gets a $20,000 advance from Pennant Publishing which is by the way the publishing company that Elaine Bennis works for in the, yes! t- in the television series Seinfeld. <laughs> What's that about? Mallrats is part of the, the Seinfeld interconnected universe. It is nice to know that it's part of the Seinfeld universe as also as Miranda Zickler and I were talking about recently more should have been done with the fact that Friends technically is a spinoff of Mad About You. Well, tell me, I I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. Because Ursula Buffay was a character in Mad About You before Phoebe was a character in Friends. Oh, just like as a waitress? Yeah. Like that sort of thing? Oh, wow. She's wow, the waitress wow. at Riffs. And then as far as I can tell, Friends started on NBC and they were like, but we already have Lisa on a show on NBC. And they were like, well... Ha 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 ha. What if this character is the twin sister of the character on Mad About You that she used to do? And then they did a crossover episode where Ursula dated Joey. I love that. Anyway, yes. And then we also have Ben Affleck, who, Alex, I feel like you're passionate about this era of Ben Affleck's work. Can you tell us what he's up to in this movie? He's the manager of a store called Fashionable Mail, um, very similar to a store. <laughs> Which like- I would think that it's a stationary store with that name. <laughs> a 
this a thing that I have called out multiple times on on Twitter.com now, rebranded as X.com, is that it's so crazy that he is the owner of Fashionable Mail and he's dressed like what would happen if you zapped a child with a ray and instantly turned him into an adult. Like he's wearing like a Henley that doesn't fit and a suit jacket that looks like he stole it from a giant. Well, there's and this is this is important, I feel like, because like, you know, Fashionable Mail feels a lot like structure or a store that was popular at the time called the Chess King. Mm. where all clothes for fashionable men in their 20s looked also like clothes that you would get for an eight-year-old out of Bugle Boy. So like it was a really strange, <laughs> it's a very strange area of clothing. And he is apparently, uh, Shannon Doherty's character who broke up with Brody earlier this day is now going on a, a mall date with the manager of Fashionable Mail, uh, played by Ben Affleck. And his whole thing is he likes to, as he announces in his villain speech, Mm -hmm. he likes to meet women at vulnerable times in their life. Mm -hmm. Very realistic so far. (laughs) Yeah. And employ some bit of opportunism to get them to agree in their vulnerability to have sex in an uncomfortable place. (laughs) At which point everybody asks what, like the back of a Volkswagen. (laughs) Which would be my first thought, to be honest. And then he's like, no. And it turns out he's just talking about anal sex. Yes, which the movie never names, but it's like we all know because anal sex haunted the 90s like one of the those giant monsters in Lovecraft. Kevin Smith is a Catholic? Really? <laughs> that plays big into some movies that come up later, uh, particularly Dogma. But no, to me, no movie speaks to his Catholicism like his obsession with anal sex Mm. being what it is in this movie. (laughs) Well, it's weird too, because it it brings up the question of like the questions we didn't ask about consent in culture as it was very recently, because it's like, well, okay, you're a bit of a menace if you're like seizing women when they're like easy to manipulate. But then it's like, theoretically they can still say no to anal as people do every day but the implication is that they can't yeah which gets us into the territory of like dennis do these women want to be on this boat with us <laughs> yeah his his pride i mean and we later we later learn that he has sex with a, one of my favorite jokes in this movie which should not be a joke is when he's getting spoiler alert when he's later getting arrested because we find out that he had sex with uh, the the 15 year old and he says as part of her sexological research so we as the audience don't have to worry about it although it still weighs on the mind right he's like 15 i actually i thought she was 36 but yeah his his issue that they never address is that he's predatory and manipulative not like where he wants to put his dick but that just again, right. to your point it shows what what we were focused on at this time yeah it's interesting looking at that through the now the the lens that we understand Harvey Weinstein through who is like you know yes. the unseen puppet master putting pouring money into this film mm. uh, where Ben mm-hmm. Affleck plays a sexual predator who dresses like a tall baby <laughs> <laughs> like a tall baby going to a job interview like I just yes a tall baby who suddenly is the man of the house and is very mad about it and I do understand on whatever level that. I think it wasn't mainstream to talk about utilizing lubricant until like 
2007. <laughs> it's interesting the things that are permissible in this and the things that aren't because there's a there's a moment where Brody walks into a women's clothing store and puts a pair of lace underwear over him and says I would have been a sexy chick. Now ask you ask yourselves if that confused the hell out of young confused closeted trans person Nico Stratus in the early <laughs> mid to mid 1990s watching this movie when I wanted to be both leads and he walks in and says I would have been a sexy chick and your whole world unravels around you. Mm. But it is interesting that like playing with gender and talking openly about sexuality is fine but there's a limit like you understand there's a barrier and that right changes in the between this movie and the follow-up chasing amy which is like explicitly about queerness and has a lot of problematic aspects to it but um but it is interesting like what is allowed and what isn't and to this point like ben affleck to the to the earlier question to this point we didn't get dynamic Ben until a one-two punch with chasing Amy doing the best he could and with what he had. And then um, Goodwill Hunting, which Kevin Smith and Scott Mosier, who uh, Scott Mosier produced this movie. He played Willem in the in the in Clerks. He and Kevin Smith were producers of Goodwill Hunting. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah, they helped facilitate that into the world. Some nice wholesome boy energy. I hope. Yeah, it seems like it. There's a lot of boy energy in these movies. Yeah. It's just nice when boys make something together. <laughs> That's my analysis. <laughs> when will boys get a chance? That's really what I'm wondering. <laughs> well, I feel like they're using their chances to like shoot abortion doctors or something, you know, like the opposite of war isn't peace. It's creation to quote probably Mark from rent. <laughs> This is like, if you just said, what is the conversation around Mallrats going to be? You would never imagine that everything that, that has come up so far today is is what would be placed on the table. And I'm just like, I'm going to think about this conversation for the rest of my life, I think. And I have you two to credit for it. We're all uh, conspiring together. I love it. We're all in this schooner together. <laughs> we also... Have Ethan Supley in this movie, who at the start is set up as staring at a magic eye picture, trying to see a sailboat, and he can't see it. This will pay off later. And so Jason Lee gets advice from Stan Lee at one point about how he has to chase true love, gives the stink hand to Michael Rooker by sticking his hand <laughs> in his ass and then getting handsy with, with Michael Rooker during a, a nice... Nice, intimate handshake. Gives him Giardia. Michael Rooker immediately becomes violently <laughs> ill. Yeah. Great acting by Michael Rooker. You know? Great puking in a, in a bag. One of the best. <laughs> and this all culminates in a plot. They also, of course, have to go to the Dirt Mall and uh, visit a topless fortune teller played by Priscilla Barnes who's one of the highlights. I think Priscilla Barnes was on Three's Company. Yeah, Three's Company is Priscilla Barnes, yeah. Ah, who has a fake third nipple, which is wonderful. And she says, I can't believe I didn't remember this line, which is both pivotal in the movie and is so important to the rest of my life. She says, understanding is reached only after, after confrontation, which is an incredibly important line to every Kevin mm -hmm. Smith character ever mm -hmm. on screen, right? Which is like all a bunch of boys who are terrified of confrontation, avoiding it at all costs. Really, at the end of the day, same happened in Clerks, need someone to come and yell at them shit or get off the pot. Mm -hmm. Like that's what all of these men need. And in this case, they got it by way of a fake third nippled 
medium. Which I like is the one thing that skeeves out Jason Lee, where he's like, that's a bridge too far for him. Or he is like, he's disgusted by the third nipple. At one point when Jeremy London says, oh, you have a third nipple. And he says, what are you talking about? It's as clear as day. I want to give credit to Jason Lee, who outacts almost everybody in this movie, considering that he has never acted professionally before being in Mallrats. Like, he has, but never really. Yeah, that's shocking. He's the strongest actor in this, other than Shannon Doherty. I don't want to contend. I don't want to push back. But you are. (laughs) I don't want to, but I'm immediately going to. But I must. To call what Jason Lee does in this movie acting. I'm just saying in contrast to everything else. And not commitment to a bit at 11. (laughs) The Scientologist has presence. No longer Scientologist, by the way. Yes, and that is great news too. But leaned into... Fully leaned into what he does, I think, is a perfect way. He's the the only one that commits. Yes. Right. You need to commit to a character who, for some reason, would be speaking exclusively in monologues. And that actually doesn't leave you with a lot of options, arguably. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, to round out the plot, we carry out a plot where Jay and Silent Bob get the other contestants on the dating game mall show too stoned to go on the show. So then the contestants are Quint and Brody and Dante's cousin, canonically. Gil Hicks. Gil Hicks. Yeah. It's because Dante in color. And I wouldn't have recognized him if not for Brian O'Halloran's voice, which is very distinctive. And then... Nico, take us home. What happens in the final act? So they do a dating game knockoff, which is like acknowledged is a knockoff of the dating game, uh, mm-hmm. wherein Claire Forlaney suppressing her. She has a British. She's British in real life. Mm-hmm. IRL is constantly suppressing her accent in order to sound American, which is she is struggling. It's like ho- trying to hold a life preserver underwater. <laughs> she is struggling to stay afloat outside the wreckage of the Titanic with that accent. So she is she's this she's the suitor at they refer to it very clumsily I as so yeah <laughs> and then brody bruce and t.s quint and gil hicks are the three contestants now it takes her longer than it should to recognize that one of the voices speaking into a so microphone well. divided by a plastic divider is the guy she almost got married to that morning like it isn't until Jason Lee does this monologue about his cousin Walter jerking off on a plane when it was in free fall. And then there's a pause. And then Gil Hicks says, so did he come or what? <laughs> and Jason Lee pipes in and says, Jesus Christ, man, there's just some things you don't talk about in public. I want to reiterate for people. I did not watch this movie ahead of this episode. I have seen it so many times that I know every fucking line of dialogue. Beat by beat. It's not until he tells the story about his cousin jerking off at an airplane in free fall that Claire Forlaney on the other side of this barrier on the same stage is like oh i know who these two gentlemen are she's like hey wait a minute claire forlaney asks him about his comic book collection because brody being a comic book guy is a recurring thing but he proves himself to be charming and fun and then the studio execs from i guess nbc approach him afterwards and ask if he wants his own talk show and michael rooker who still has beaver fever um which is what we always called jardia in the yukon and maybe that's not what we're supposed to call it anymore but we called it beaver fever that's what we called it in oregon when i was growing up yeah you called it beaver fever yeah we did because huh. you get it from beavers anecdotally yeah I thought beaver fever was different, but that's interesting. Well, you know, there can be multiple beavers fever. 
yeah, so he gets approached to have his own talk show. Um, he makes up with Renee because he sort of makes this grand gesture to her on stage. Because they've also, we should mention, we did gloss over the fact that uh, he grabs her while T.S. Quint distracts Shannon Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jason Lee and Shannon Doherty have sex on a stalled elevator while people are waiting oh, yes. to use it. And then she takes his, she's wearing his Degrassi jacket um, because. Kevin Smith obsessed with Degrassi Junior High. Love it. And then uh, he makes a grand gesture to her at the end. They get back together while they're on stage. Um, they show the VHS tape of Ben Affleck having sex with a teenager. Which they're able to show because Magic Eye Guy finally loses his temper, punches something that causes the VHS tape to bounce up in a way that makes Silent Bob think that his force practicing has finally paid off. And you know what's funny is that it's such a cliche today for like people to go on about Star Wars more than is appropriate in polite conversation. But at the time, I really feel like... Oh, it was not cool. Right. And it feels like the difference is that like, you know, as many people have talked about more intelligently than I can, and the past 15 years have changed a lot in terms of how mainstream kind of typical nerd subculture has become, which creates you know, some dilemmas. And one of them is that media where you feel like this kind of line of thought would be tiresome if you encountered it today. And if someone wrote it today at the time, it was like you weren't getting any of this anywhere. And it was actually really fun and exciting. This is a thing that I keep sort of going back to with this movie is like Jason Lee is by accounts like, you know, like he is like he's funny and charming and attractive and all these things. But he likes Star Wars and comics and video games, all of which are like major industries now. But at the time, you're Mm -hmm. right. Like liking Star Wars wasn't cool. We hadn't even done prequels yet. Like being really into Marvel comics so much Mm -hmm. so that you would get into a fist fight with some other guys outside a comic book store and yell just because a guy reads some comics. You think he can't start some shit like None of that stuff was cool. This wasn't mass media. It wasn't popular. What would become a signature of the Marvel Universe movies? I mean, because, you know, in part because obviously Stanley came up with it, but what became a signature of those movies were cameos. And like, this is like, I think this is the only movie I can remember at the time that had like an extended Stan Lee cameo. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. for who? Do you know what I mean? Like not for like a mass audience. For for Kevin. (laughs) Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. He was like, can we get Stan Lee? Is Stan Lee busy? Is he writing Excelsior in the the letters page of a a Fantastic Four book right now? And if he's free, could he come by this abandoned mall in New Jersey we're filming in? I do. I do love a thing, a a detail that. Not that it hasn't come up, but that we didn't quite hit when we brought her up originally is that the book that Trish is writing, because again, like we talk, there are these movies in 500 Days of Summer feels like this, where it's like, you have guys who like, at the end of the day, like they're not, you know, there's some problems with them and their relationships with women and sort of how they're approaching stuff. And you don't know how aware the filmmaker is himself of his own problems or of like he's sort of glorifying this stuff or whatever. And then Clerks, like we did get to know that like these people are, they're fun to spend time with, but they're yeah. also kind of losers. Yeah. But my favorite joke is the fact that her book is called Borgasm, a study of the nineties <laughs> male sexual prowess. <laughs> so which to me is like the biggest sort of like punchline and underscoring of awareness about what we're dealing with with men in the 90s. She's really telling some truths in that book. No wonder it was such a big bestseller. She is also the sister of uh, Alicia Jones, the lesbian from Chasing Amy. In the grander View Askew universe, she is the younger sister of Alicia Jones. And Chasing Amy, God forbid we get too deep into that one, but I was thinking recently about how Jason Lee's character in that 
his solution for all the strife is we should all have sex with each other. And that was made to seem like a really bad idea at the time. But I think that that's pretty good problem solving that more and more people are using lately. And I've brought this up so many times. I even hate to bring it up. But like, again, again, the tremors model in which the men are actually in love with each other, not the women who are supposedly Mm -hmm. their love interest. He has a tremors poster Mm -hmm. in his room. Oh, yeah. This movie at the end of the day, they end up with the women they are purportedly interested in. But like Mm -hmm. it is a love story between them. It is a love story between sort of like a bunch of nerds in one way or another in chasing Amy. Like it's really at the end of the day, a love story between those two men and then a woman that one of them becomes obsessed with. And Ben Affleck's one little tear. (laughs) A single Ben tear rolls into a Dunkin' Donuts cup. (laughs) It's all love stories between dudes and the women who happen to be there. Yeah. So is this a movie that the studio just was like, oh, never mind with? No, this was a movie where, yeah, I think that the way that he told it was, you know, he got a call from the studio on the weekend and he was like, how'd we do? And they're like, 400,000. And he was like, which region? And they're like, all of it. Mm. And they just, rather than keep the screen real estate open, they closed it down and put a new movie in its place. So depressing. They did that with its Pat. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> that one it makes more sense with. It's the proto its Pat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, may, it's a, it has since made its money back. but it, the, You know it hasn't made its money back? It's bad. <laughs> <laughs> he was talking about, he had no frame of reference for like what happens in these cases. Like he didn't know if he owed the studio $5 million. You know, mm. everyone stops calling to, to make movies. They essentially had to make Chasing Amy as an indie again, um, which was great because it was a return to form. But like this mm. for him was such a especially after clerk such a spectacular terrifying failure that Mm. it became a you know it turned to all jay and silent bob all the time after that for a long time you know if you don't crash a little with your sophomore effort you're going to become completely insufferable (laughs) and kind of the underlying theme of it is like what to do in the face of absolute failure whether what whatever Mm. that failure may be you know like our hero quote-unquote hero at the start of the movie opens with failure and doesn't really find a way through it until pretty much the end of the movie and it's like it's sort of asking Mm. you to find success in the sort of beautiful mundanity of the world around you and like and measure success in a very small manageable way you know and and it isn't such an interesting big bold swing after like okay i'm this auteur now i made this independent movie that did really well and people love me what am i gonna do i'm gonna make a movie about fucking nothing at all set in a goddamn mall that only the only time it changes scenes is to go to a different worse mall (laughs) it's yeah it's like who's afraid of virginia wolf where they're in one location (laughs) and then they go to a bar briefly and then they go back to the same location It's kind of bold in a way. Like, I do think, I know I'm like, I am like the person that I know I try to like blow up the spot on a lot of media that a lot of people are going to like discount or call trashy or whatever. Like, I think about this when I wrote about Jackass was like, we can so easily write these things off, but it is actually really bold to say like, I want to tell a very nothing story in a nothing backdrop and I want the people to really feel like they belong there and they're looking for something and they never really quite get it but there's there's a resolution well enough where you feel like this is what success looks like for now well I think that movies that were as Alex you pointed out very a play to use our Caroline dictionary didn't 
usually do that well theatrically, but then often would like get a following in, in home video. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. It was so much easier to be a cult classic back then because like people would trade things around yeah. and like, because like now with streaming, Keep circulating the tapes totally. Or like people would tell you about a thing and they would be like, yeah, I've got it. Like, this is how mystery science theater got given to me as a kid was like, somebody tells you about a thing. Somebody's got a VHS tape, like the way that sort of rumors and innuendo build a cult classic. And now so mm -hmm. much of it has to be like, okay, well, like you can watch this thing. It's on AM. Amazon. Like it just has like such a different approach to like building something out of a mystery. Yeah. And then a million things come up behind it, you know, and the, yeah. and there are, as we talk about so frequently on the show, so many advantages to there being more options to the kinds of media that people, especially kids and adolescents can seek out because you can see more of the world and see it more clearly and understand your place in it better. But there was also something special about us all sharing the same 75 movies every year <laughs> and that was it what else do we want to speak to <laughs> i mean i do think this movie is like kind of sad and brilliant in its own way and i also realize that it's like not it's like it's not great it's not perfect the writing doesn't always work the pacing doesn't always work well no it's not newsies there's only one perfect movie and it's newsies so you know who could be newsies who could take the crown only newsies you know that's the thing but i do think i just like i love these situ the world's that we had in these sorts of stories where it just like, I know I keep saying these like that it's real and it's tactile, but I just feel like we've kind of moved really far afield from that because everything needs to be big and bold and we're constantly challenge ourselves to imagine a world we could never see ourselves in. And like, mm -hmm. I really miss this era when you were allowed to imagine a world that is conceivably real, that you could be a part of, that you could be a loser or a failure in. Like, I like that there is no hero here. Everybody is flawed and failing in their own specific way. Mm -hmm. And no one, like, course corrects and becomes perfect. They just learn how to be a different kind of loser with somebody else. And I think that is, like, kind of a weird, beautiful message of, like, don't learn to be perfect. Learn to be flawed and to keep going. This is a thing I think about a lot with, like, transition and with sobriety and with, like, other parts of my mm -hmm. personality that I talk and write about a lot is, like, these things are not easy answers and they're never meant to be perfect. What they are is telling you to understand and know yourself and knowing yourself is really hard. A thing that I really loved about Jason Lee's Brody character was that Brody knows who he is, even though mm -hmm. he is flawed and even though he's hiding parts of himself, he's unafraid to be the parts of himself that he loves very loudly. And I think, especially in the nineties, if you were into that sort of stuff, I got jumped on my way home from a comic book store when I was a kid because I had comic books and because I specifically had spider woman and i was at the time not in like <laughs> that's not funny but the phrase I know, it is, is kind so of funny good. though right she is now spider woman <laughs> now legally recognized now you would not get jumped for that comic i mean it, it, is, it is such a different landscape and like and to see someone be like and i thought jason lee was i had jason lee's signature airwalks like i thought jason lee was cool as shit i still do you know he's a beautiful photographer mm -hmm. now by the way and yeah. Like to see someone be so boldly living as this is the sort of person that I am and I am not changing the person that I am, even to my own detriment. And like, I will eventually like try to course correct the toxic parts of my behavior in order to let love back into my life. But this is the person that I am. And I like being this person. And like, it's like the Uncle Buck speech. Or not the Uncle Buck story. It's the planes, mm -hmm. trains, and automobiles speech mm -hmm. where he's like, I like me. My wife likes me, even though his wife is dead. Spoiler alert. But like... <laughs> 
I really like this, like beautiful losers that are never made perfect. They don't ever have to take mm. their glasses off and shake their hair and reveal, surprise, I've been incredibly beautiful all this time. They're allowed to still be damaged and broken and flawed and losers. That part of them doesn't matter. That part doesn't have to be fixed. What mm. has to be fixed is like their understanding of themselves and their ability to, you know, be vulnerable in front of somebody else in so far that they can like have a relationship. Like, I think that's like... It doesn't necessarily always work in the storytelling, but it is kind of an underlying subtext that I also that I just always really loved. All of that is beautiful. And the only thing I would change is, Brandy, don't marry this man. <laughs> There's no reason for you two to get married. There should be like diet marriage for if you just want to like make a big gesture, you know, just make it to the next day. <laughs> the Jeremy London Claire Forlani love story makes no sense because None. you never buy like you see Brody be in love with Renee. You see him mm -hmm. like pine for her, chase after her, steal her away from. You see that he's upset that she's with somebody else. Like you get all these things. The only thing you see with Jeremy London is that he has lost control of this woman he feels ownership over and is desperate to get that control back insofar that he will yes. hire a guy who doesn't speak to destroy a stage <laughs> around a guy dressed as one fourth of a barbershop quartet who is rumored to have two kills and put her in harm's way yeah well also who's her character who is this person there's no it's we not. don't know her like we know joey lauren adams that's a character who we have a very good sense of yeah you know and she doesn't serve much of a purpose in the story at all really but she's a real person but who's claire forlani we don't know she's henry portrait of a serial killer's daughter right i guess is that what rooker is known for at this point is henry portrait of a serial killer it's what i know him for yeah i'm pretty sure that's like his biggest title at that point <laughs> I know I said earlier that Jason Lee's acting circles aren't everybody in this movie, but also Rooker is just like, so Michael Rooker is a guy that Juicy. will always commit to the role that he has been given. And I just like, whenever he's in a thing, I'm just like, oh, Rooker's here. Okay, we're having, it's like when Michael Shannon shows up in a movie, you're like, oh, Michael Shannon's here? All right, yeah. I'll, sit. I'll watch this. Yeah, yeah. Michael yeah. Rooker, Ray Wise, Michael Shannon, these are like weirdos who bring intensity. <laughs> these are the, the bad ads of the cinema, bad ads. if you will. Linda Cardellini. And yeah, and Michael Rooker is like, such a great character like standing for like every girlfriend's dad who hates you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he's like the wario version of the dad from 10 things i hate about you <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> give me that movie somehow yeah, i don't know what yeah, the plot yeah. would be but i want to see uh, it well i'm wondering Nico Stratos. Yeah. Yes. Present. We know that Michael Rooker is a father. We know that he's a father in this movie. Yes. Who in your view is the daddy? Joey Lauren Adams's character. Wow. I'm going to tell you why. It's so funny to be asked this question, which I actually forgot was part of the show. <laughs> I forget every time. Because I just finished writing my draft of my book, which is called The Dad Rock That Made Me a Woman. And I wrote a lot about dads. And you know, she is sort of like this catastrophic failure that is also unabashedly herself and is unafraid to be like, hey, here's all, here's the places I've been. Here's the mistakes I've made. I'm not telling you right or wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm just showing you what I've done. Learn by my mistakes or don't, don't really care. It's up to you. I'm just here for you. I love you. Uh, some guys try to bust into me while I'm changing, so I'm just going to do it out of the open because fuck everything. And also, I fucked Rick Darris on a pool table. She's a woman who doesn't dwell on the past. You know, no. where else do you get role models for that? She celebrates it. She fucked Rick Darris on a pool table. <laughs> Yeah. So that's so you have your you have Joey Lauren Adams character. Yes. Yeah. I love what is Shannon Doherty's character's name in this movie? Renee. 
Renee. I'm going to pick Renee. That is also a really good answer. Backup answer is the song Suzanne by Weezer, which I love so much in this in this movie. But yeah, I'm going to pick Renee for knowing what she wants and what she doesn't want, delivering it in letter form that is so verbose that when she throws it at him, you hear like an actual thud. So yes. there's you can you I imagine this is a multi-page letter for knowing that part of what she wants is uh, coital satisfaction, which he is not delivering on. And so she expresses that in, in addition to all of the, the other stuff and trying to pursue it elsewhere <laughs> in the face of it not working out here until he is able to show up you know, in a form more thorough than what he was capable of when they woke up that morning. So I, I love that about her. And I've, I've always like, I'm not necessarily, this isn't a criticism in any way, but like Jen and Jordy never did anything for me when, when Nino was on, but her in this movie, I always found in, and I feel like there's like a power that she wasn't able to inhabit in 90210. Mm Mm-hmm. She's a bitch in this movie in a yeah. very Caitlin Spooner kind of a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, and I am taken. I have been taken by it since I was 13 years old. Yeah. And I still am. She's captivated and alluring. Yes. And she ends up as a drummer on The Tonight Show. I, I love that outcome. It's so great. Um, Sarah Marshall is your daddy. Oh, my gosh. Um, my daddy is Trisha, the teenage <laughs> sexologist. The Disha? Because I love a Trisha the Disha. I love... Because I loved as a teenager and loved the idea of being a woman using sex as a way to explore the world rather than being a pawn of the devil. And it's always exciting to see representations of that, however flawed the culture around them is. Um, But my daddy is also Nico, who in one fell swoop drew a straight line between Jason Lee and Leonard Cohen. And we must appreciate that. We must have a moment of silence. I might, I honestly might cry at that. (laughs) (laughs) And also like calling a movie mall rats is just a synonym for calling it beautiful losers, (laughs) which I love. And we're all, we are mall rats. We sure are. And the show is of the mall rats by the mall rats for the mall rats. We are all of us mall rats. I sought out and got a job at the mall because of this movie. Really? Yeah. Uh, where did you work again at the, did you work at the buffet? Well, here's what, here's what happened. I hung out at the mall so often as an actual mall rat that one day someone who worked at one of the cool kiosks was like, Hey, here's $20. Would you mind going to the store and like getting me a sandwich? And then I went around and asked other people to do it. And I made, I started to like actually make decent cash doing essentially like sort of uh, freelance delivery for people. Just like Christina Aguilera in burlesque. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I showed, (laughs) I showed some hustle and then I got hired at the cart where the guy asked me for that. And then I, I went on to work at sometimes literally just for one or two day stints because you could do that at some of these stores. I went on to work at at least over the next five years, 13 establishments at the mall. That's amazing. You should write a memoir about that. Yeah, I think I should. I, that's also where I started making zines and giving zines out. So it was like a real ecosystem. Is that where you also started raging against machines? It is also. <laughs> absolutely. I'm, and it was where I was not sick, uh, but also not well. Quote our friend Sean Nelson. Did you want to pierce your tongue? Yeah, it doesn't hurt. It feels fine. <laughs> Nico, how would people find things from you oh God, if they know. wanted to hear more of your voice and insight? I can't imagine after all this you will, but if you do want to, <laughs> uh, I am at Nico Stratus on social media outlets. I am 
My newsletter is anxietyshark.ca. I'm currently bringing my podcast back, which is called Blue Eyes Crying by the Chips, which is a podcast mm. about the songs we love and the places we've cried to them in public. Fabulous. I want to make a jingle for your name so people can remember it because the spelling is not necessarily intuitive. N I K O S T R. Wait. S T R A T I S. Huh? I love this. I love this. It's like a carpet cleaner jingle. Now people are going to be forced to go to your website. Finally, at long last. <laughs> Thank you so much. I feel, I'm going to wire you an appropriate amount of like whatever, whatever, you, whatever your ask is for jingle writing. Nice. I just need like a fraction of a, a cent CAD whenever you get a hit because of that. So we'll work it out later. <laughs> I cannot for the life of me think of a more Canadian thing to say than I'm going to wire you an appropriate amount of money. <laughs> yeah, this most Canadian version. Look, whenever I saw Dave Foley in Fargo season five, I'm like, you're not fucking convincing anybody you're not from Canada, my guy. <laughs> it's like how, when they had him on news radio, they had him play a character from Madison, Wisconsin. And then when they decided that wasn't working, they decided he was a closeted Canadian. I'm just watching news radio because it just got added to Amazon Prime. And I love that little <gasps> fact. Dave Foley constantly running from his Canadian heritage because he's legally not allowed back in the country because of all the child support that he has. Oh, no. Oh, boy. All right. Dave Foley episode coming soon. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you to Nico Stratus for joining us. We love Nico. We appreciate you, Nico. Thank you for being here. Thanks, of course, to Miranda Zickler for producing this episode, for editing this episode, for making it sound great. We appreciate you, Miranda. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our episode sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for listening to the episode, of course. Thank you for telling your friends about the episode. Thank you for uh, rating us with five stars on Apple Podcast subscriptions or wherever you can. I think that that's the one where we get the most impact, but wherever you're able to rate and let people know that this is a show that you like, we appreciate that. Thank you for uh, supporting us on Apple Podcast subscriptions and Patreon. You get those bonus episodes and we are able to keep making the show. So I think it's a nice trait. Thanks for finding us on social media. You are good or you are good pod, depending on which one you're uh, trying to find us on. And I think that's it right now for this week's uh, this week's episode. Until next time, don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Snoochie boochies. Snoochie boochies.